0: You're listening to Manx Radio, and I'm Judith Lay. welcoming you to the podcast of the Manx Sky at Night with Howard Parkin.
1: Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
0: And that familiar music tells us that it is time for this month's edition of The Manx Sky at Night. And as usual, we welcome into the studio, Howard Parkin. Fast am I. Howard, good Fast evening. Fast
1: Judith, it's great to be here again.
0: Well, the weeks fly by and the stories fly in. Don't they just. Let us, as usual, start with a look at our own Manx skies. And... Well, even though it wasn't all we hoped it would be, we have to just mention the eclipse, don't we?
1: Yeah, unfortunately. What a total disaster from a Manx perspective. We had a partial eclipse of the sun, of course, two weeks ago now on the 10th of June. And um, I was all excited about showing people this. And we had a lecture booked at the Sound. We had an eclipse breakfast. And uh, it was a sellout event. I'm delighted to say there was over 80 people turned up. And we got there early. I got there about 8 o'clock. And we set up and got everything ready. You know, you couldn't even see the calf from the sound. And at one point, you couldn't even see Kitterland. And did it get any better? No. It stayed cloudy the whole time. We didn't see a thing. There was a couple that left halfway through and I thought, oh dear, I've upset them or they're bored or something. And it turned out they got a text message from a friend up in Andreas. And I believe they hot-footed it from the sound up to Andreas. And I understand, I've not met anyone who has said they saw it in, uh, in the north, but I believe people in Ramsey and possibly uh, Balaf round there, they saw it. I've got a great friend in Edinburgh, uh, one of our society members, Graham Gordon, who's based in Edinburgh at the moment, and he... Actually Actually sent us pictures of it live uh, down at the sound, so some of us did get to see a little bit of it. But such a disappointment. But you know, Judith, it reminds me way back in 2005 when we had the same thing happen, and uh, I was teaching at the college at the time, and I got a, um, a newspaper cutting sent to me by Patrick Cowley. I still thank him when I see him uh, about a clip trip to Turkey the following March, March 06, and. Um, three of us from the Isle of Man went and we saw this total eclipse and you know it was worth every penny and I still I said this on the other day when I was down at the Sound if you get the chance to see an eclipse it's one of the most amazing spectacles you'll ever see one of the few times I've ever been speechless.
0: And that says quite a lot because <laughs> you are no I, I'm meaning that seriously how you, you see you, you've seen in the various countries that you've been to you've seen so many
1: phenomena oh, yeah that for something to render you speechless just says how special Indeed. it is. It was is. breathtaking. It almost it was an emotional event. Yeah. It really is. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah. And we have got, I'm not sure the exact date, because I wasn't expecting to talk about it today as much, um, but um, there is an eclipse going across the top of Spain, 2025-26. Uh, that's certainly one to mark your calendars and your diaries for, because we have another partial in October next year, but um, it'll be cloudy probably. <laughs> But in between all of those things, there's always, always, even
0: if it's just the moon yes. in the night sky. And even now, which is the the worst time for stargazing, it is. isn't it? There's just too much light. But, it, but it, even, you know, at half past ten at night, when I'm often out having a walk, even in, in the sort of half light of the sky and you see the moon and it's mm-hmm. just
1: so beautiful. Oh. Well, we've just had a supermoon a few days ago. Um, the supermoon, which we don't like, I think I mentioned this before, we don't like the expression, it's astrological in origin, but if it gets people looking at the moon, and when the moon rises over the eastern horizon, it did the other night on Thursday, it's breathtaking. It really is fantastic. But I hope you all did my experiment, I tell you all to do. It's not bigger on the horizon than it is anywhere else. Hold your little finger at arm's length and you will cover the whole moon with your little finger. Supermoon it might be, but it's still very small in comparison to the size of the the horizon we look at from the island.
0: I got into quite a quite a deal of trouble recently, trying to explain to somebody who was saying about it being bigger and smaller. I was explaining about that and I got a clue that being <laughs> too big for me boots, you know. Oh
1: dear, sorry, Judith.
0: <laughs> I just said it's one of the spin-off benefits of doing this program <laughs> that I learn about all kinds of things, as well as making me follow any story that comes in the news that's got NASA in the word
1: or or SpaceX or anything like that. The listeners don't know this, but Judith, you know, listeners, she gets every month she gets a list for me. And she, she, she trips me up with some stories because I may have heard of most of them, but she's always finding one I haven't heard of. So there's a frantic flurry then to try and find out something about it. So it's great that Judith is so uh, keen to do this with me. So it's just fun. Thank you.
0: But I think, Howard, that, that what we do, you've given me a, a much heightened interest as, as well as there's as filling in all kinds of gaps in knowledge, but a heightened interest in what's going on in the sky, in the world of space. Good. And I'm sure that you're doing it for
1: lots of other people. Hopefully. So. Another S word, solstice. Yes the depressing news is that after last Tuesday, we're now heading backwards. We're going back towards winter now. We've had the longest day. That has been and gone. And we're now heading back towards the winter solstice, which will, of course, occur just before Christmas on the 21st of December. But, joking apart, the light nights, obviously, uh, they're not behind us yet. It'll still be very light in the sky right through now to the beginning of August. I've mentioned before, we don't get beyond astronomical twilight between the end of May and the beginning of August. Uh, So, not really much you can see in the night sky in the way of deep space objects the moon is still very dominant and we we can't help but see the moon when it's around but the other great thing we can see now and getting higher and higher each day not setting until about half past 10 at night is the brilliant planet venus venus is getting higher and higher and higher and it really is becoming quite noticeable now if you look towards the western sky after the sun's gone down you'll see this bright object unmistakably the planet venus now the other thing about venus uh, it often serves as a pointer for us and mars has been in the news an awful lot just recently there's been some fantastic stuff about mars and we'll be talking about mars after the break but if you want to see mars it's very faint now it's difficult to spot it's in a light sky but on the 13th of july they are literally going to be very very close to each other the two planets are going to be just half a degree apart they're going to be as far apart as the width of the moon so you look for Venus, a very bright Venus, and it depends what time you look and everything else because the motion of these two is quite apparent over a period of hours. Um, just look, at find Venus for yourself and look for this faint star. You'll probably need binoculars and look for this faint star which will be much, much fainter and it'll have a red tinge to it. That's the planet Mars, the planet where at the moment we've got helicopter flying on it, we've got three rovers roving round on it, we've got spacecraft orbiting it. You know Mars is the only planet we know that's inhabited by robots. I can, it. I can believe it.
0: I am. I am firmly of the belief that they're going to have to ration the number of things going up into space because it's just going to be or install traffic light system or something. Well, just...
1: joking apart, Judith, that is a serious problem. The amount of objects in low Earth orbit, in particular, are causing a problem because you don't. You launch a satellite. Imagine you've got a satellite. The the most common way to describe a satellite is a fridge imagine a fridge with wings on the wings of the solar panels that's the average size of the normal satellite these days to get that up there you've got the the payload um, motor which puts it in its required orbit you've got the fairing on the spacecraft then the rocket and all this debris is up there as well and it's orbiting the earth eventually it re-enters and burns up but in the meantime it's traveling at 17 odd thousand miles an hour to keep it up there and if a tiny piece of um, debris it could strike another spacecraft it can cause serious problems they move the international space station at regular intervals they move it to make sure they don't get hit by things and they have what they call a baffle shield on the uh, space station it's very clever it's just a, a piece of aluminium that is set back a few inches i think away from the main hull and of course anything small hits it the the uh, energy dissipates immediately on the shield and it doesn't do, do any damage to the hull that said, they've still had a puncture not long ago, which uh, caused a problem. So they've got to be careful. It is a major problem.
0: Mm. Yes, I I think we need to keep it into perspective. And we sometimes there are unfortunate stories in the media about something you know the size of London that's going to to hit the earth. That kind of thing. The, the danger to the earth is is remote. Is minimal. Yeah. But but it's how it's going to. Is, is this ultimately going to develop, disturb ecosystems by, by what it might be doing in the atmosphere? It's it's tri- a tricky one, isn't it? It, it
1: is, and obviously as we, we get more and more dependent on the technology and we need the spacecraft and we need the, the things they send down to us. I mean, there's a thing I read not long ago about if we had a day without spacecraft, access to spacecraft, the amount of things that would crash, not least would be the internet. And OK, we might think, OK, we can't look up on Google what, what's going on but the banking systems the air traffic control systems security systems you name it we are so dependent now and uh, don't get me going on my other hobby horses when the sun erupts what we call a coronal mass ejection and it coincides with the earth's uh, place in the solar system when it reaches it and that could cause problems and uh, we need to be aware of these things but being aware is one thing, but doing something about it is a bit more difficult. Mm.
0: It is. Um, it's, it's holding everything in a very delicate balance. Mm-hmm. And because everything's moving on, once upon a time, a, a single space story was quite notable, wasn't mm. it? Now, as you're saying, there's something happening every yeah, day. All the time, yeah. We need to kind of hold the whole thing in balance. Yeah. And remember, uh, at, the, at the core of it is is a very wonderful, precise, beautiful, complex system. Very much that we disturb at our peril.
1: We do absolutely. I think we're more we're more environmentally aware now than we ever were, and I attribute that to the space age. Uh, lots of people attribute the the growth of global consciousness to the pi- p- pictures of the Earth from the moon with Apollo 8 in 1968. It didn't matter when we saw it from a spacecraft. When we saw the moon from a spacecraft orbit in the moon, uh, we did the earth, sorry, from the moon. We, we didn't think much of it, but when the Apollo 8 astronauts saw that earth rise that just, it was a pivotal moment to me in the exploration of space and the awareness of the fragility of our planet.
0: Mm. Right, we will, as you say, we'll be talking uh, later in the programme about Venus and about Mars as well. Um, Jupiter and Saturn available in the morning sky?
1: Yes, they're, um, they might recall uh, they went past each other and late December, just before Christmas actually, on the 21st of December last year, they were very, very close to each other. And because Jupiter takes 12 hours, 12, sorry, 12 hours, 12 years to go around the sun and Saturn takes 26, they're slowly pulling apart from each other as Jupiter is, is moving around faster. But they're still both rising in the morning sky and are visible from about three o'clock in the morning, again in a light sky. But Jupiter, a bit like Venus, is very bright indeed, very easy to spot and well worth looking out for it rises about five hours before sunrise at the beginning of July, so you've got plenty of chances to see it. So if you are a, you are an early riser, um, it's probably going to be coming up about 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. And uh, Saturn, not far away from it, lower right of it, you've got Saturn, fainter, yes, but both of them well worth looking at. And it's just the procession of the planets across our sky that the ancient astronomers realised all those centuries ago that made them realise that the Earth was so special. It leads back to what we were talking about a moment ago. Noctilucent clouds. Yes, there's been quite a few people spotted noctilucent clouds recently. Um, These are the sort of thing that if you've never seen them, you wouldn't know what you're looking at. But when you see them for the very first time, you think, wow, what on earth's that? And the, these are these silvery, bluey-white clouds that are very, very high up in the atmosphere. It is practically dark. It's as dark as it gets. We're looking around midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning time, and they're always in the sunrise, sunset sky or the sunrise sky. So they, they drift literally across the sky from west to east. Um, and they're just clouds that are so high up that they're illuminated by the sun, which is still shining on them. Uh, all sorts of theories about their origins. Some people say they're caused by meteoric dust um, in the upper atmosphere. Some say they're a feature of global warming, so the analysis and the examining of these is quite special. But they really are quite beautiful. Strictly speaking, they're an atmospheric effect. And astronomy covers everything that we see in the sky, whether it's aurora, whether it's meteors, or whether it's not noctilusen clouds. But Oh, because it's uh, so light at the moment, it's well worth looking for these, these silvery clouds. They really are quite beautiful, and uh, I'd only seen them myself uh, literally a few years ago. I'd never seen any. It was 2015. And I remember thinking, I've never seen these. What's all the fuss about them? And then when we saw them, I thought, wow, they really are spectacular. I haven't seen any myself this year yet, but um, I'll certainly be giving it a look over the next few weeks. Your music choice this week, Howard, is something a little bit different. Well, I thought that. I thought, believe it or not, we do plan this, listeners. We do actually plan this. And uh, Judith and I get together and I email Judith and vice versa. And we try to come up with a song which is always space-related. That's one thing we've always done. And I was racking my brains um, whether we'd used this one before. Because uh, in the second half of the programme, we're going to be talking about the Chinese space effort. So... As a child growing up, I'm sure lots of people saw the film 2001. We know the lovely connections with Stanley Kubrick's daughter, Katerina, who came here a couple of years ago. The film 2001 had within it probably the most pivotal moment or iconic moment of a space station orbiting in space it was a wheel going round in space and they played this music to it and I never think of it now as a a waltz by Strauss I always think of the Orion spacecraft ironically the new spacecraft for NASA launching heading towards the space station to this music.
0: Blue Danube waltz by Strauss, but for Howard Parkin, the music from the film 2001, A Space Odyssey. Howard Parkin, our astronomer in residence, joining us in the studio for this month's edition of The Manx Sky at Night. And as we customarily do in the second half of the programme, we're having a look at what's happening in the world of space. Take it away, Mr. Parkin, where are we going?
1: Well, we're going to go with Jeff Bezos of Amazon, who is launching himself into space on the 20th of July to celebrate the anniversary of Apollo 11, which I think from memory is 52 years now since they landed on the moon on the 20th of July. Uh, He is launching his Blue Origins rocket, uh, which is a suborbital rocket. It's named Blue Origins, but the actual launch vehicle is called New Shepard. The next generation is called New Glenn and so on. And the one after that is going to be New Armstrong, I believe. But he's been planning this for some years now. And this rocket takes off and it goes up to about 100 miles or so. And then it comes back again. 15 minutes later massive well it's not a massive spacecraft but it's got huge windows in it it's got windows bigger than the studios we've got here in manx radio and there's four of them well jeff bezos because he's got the money he's made the money and good luck to him if he wants to go in his own rocket he can and he's taking his brother with him and he's also taking someone else with him but they decided to auction off the fourth seat in the spacecraft and believe it or not they got 28 million pound from it the mind Chris Williams and his Spitfire fund. I think I had Frippin's me in my fund to go into space. But 15 minutes for £28 million, you know. There's, we have on the island uh, Mark Shuttleworth, who went to the International Space Station some years ago. And it was something he could do, and uh, all credit to him for doing it. And I don't know the exact figures, but I believe for a five-day flight to the International Space Station, the figure quoted was something like £20 million. So five days for 20 million or 15 minutes for 28, even with inflation, it's a bit pricey. So I'm not going.
0: N- not this time, Not Howard. this time, around, not no. this. Leave it with us. Thank Le- you. Leave it with us. The we're... fund
1: is there if anyone wants to contribute to it, but I think we've had a long way to go. We're,
0: we're, <laughs> we're working. It's a work in progress. It certainly is. <laughs> that is crazy, crazy money. Okay, will Branson beat Betzos then? Well,
1: this was something I speculated on when Bezos announced his uh, flight, um, because... We've got these millionaires. You've got these millionaires. In particular, you've got Elon Musk, who runs SpaceX, who have been very successful. They're launching rockets. And he's never actually said about going into space. but I'm sure he will eventually. But Jeff Bezos really wants to go into space. And so does Richard Branson. And Richard Branson have got his own spacecraft, which is also doing suborbital flights. But these are in an aircraft that is air-released from um, uh, another aircraft. And these go for about, I think they give about half an hour with him. Not for £28 you don't. I think it's a quarter of a million pounds a seat for that one, so that's a bargain by comparison. And there is a test flight of the next Virgin Galactic aircraft called Unity. There's a test flight scheduled for late July. And there is some speculation... That there's two pilots going to be in the spacecraft. And they're going to have lots of instrumentation and all sorts on board, but it wouldn't be impossible to fly somebody in it. And there is a speculation that maybe Branson wants to go into space on this one. So watch this space. I think it's a bit of a, a media hype that story. I don't think it's going to happen. I think uh, Branson will wait until a bit later. But it's accelerating. The whole commercial space exploration is is really accelerating, and I'm struggling to keep up with it. Only a few days ago, NASA announced that they're looking now at some private Private citizens to go up to the international space station companies can pay for people to go up to the space station in 2023 24 um, on a proper it'll be a spacex spacecraft probably up to the iss and um, and if there's a, a reason to do it for uh, manufacturing or for uh, medical reasons or something like that um, they're looking seriously into it and they've invited people to apply for it i don't know what the cost is but um maybe my fund will have increased a bit by then
0: Well, yeah, maybe so, but it just, you know, kind of joking aside, listening to what you're saying there, it's sounding very much as though they're going to try and develop the International Space Station as a a research centre.
1: Well, it always is. It always has been, and that's what it was built for. I mean, Mm. commercially. Well, the problem is the space station is getting old and there's, there's talk about decommissioning it in about 2027, something like that. And there's issues with the Russians and the Americans cooperating because the political um, environment is not as good as it was. But you've got the Artemis um, team, which is another private commercial um, enterprise now, who are going to launch their own modules to the space station, attach them to the ISS. And when they've got all the modules built and attached to the ISS, because it's like adding an extension to your house, but then you knock down the rest of your house and live in the extension. That's what they're going to do when the space station is decommissioned, and they're going to separate the Axiom space station away from it, and it's going to be a free-flying commercial space station. Just you just can't keep up with it. It's just incredible.
0: It, it is. It is mind-boggling, isn't it? Really is, is mind-boggling. Now we said that that we would be talking about Venus and Mars again in mm. in this bit of the program. The Chinese rover,
1: how's that doing? It's doing very well indeed. The Shenzhou rover is doing very very well indeed. And there's a fantastic photograph that they've just taken. They got this, they're always doing this now. They get these rovers to take selfies of themselves and then they cobble them together using Photoshop or the equivalent. And they've got a wonderful picture of this, this rover sitting on the moon next to its lander. The one the the ramp it rolled down the ramp onto, and it's a wonderful picture. You you couldn't make it up. Some no doubt will say they did make it up, but it is genuine, and it's a wonderful picture of this little rover um stood there or smiling at the camera, um which it took itself, and uh, it's just a great picture. And this whole um mission. It has been downplayed in the media a lot because it's Chinese. If it's been the Americans or the Europeans, I'm sure they've been far more publicity about it. But it is an amazing achievement by the Chinese to do this. And um, it's they're only the third nation to get a spacecraft onto, them, onto the surface of Mars. And... Um, They've got all sorts of plans to do other things, which leads me nicely into our, our Blue Danube we played a moment ago because they've launched a few months ago now, I think it was last year actually, they launched their space station and they're about to launch a crew uh, to their space station. It's their first crewed mission to interspace for four and a half years. What the Chinese have been doing is not launching regularly, but making until they've got um, everything ready for it. And they're going to launch this spacecraft with three or four people on board. And they're going to dock with the, um, the Chinese space station, Chiangong 2, I think it's called. And uh, incidentally, you can see it from the Isle of Man, or you may be able to see it from the Isle of Man once they go up. So that's something we'll have to look into. Um, but that's meant to happen in July as well. So everything's happening in July, Judith. Well, just When we're quiet. <laughs> just 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 everything happening.
0: I mean, this whole idea of a few moments ago, we're talking about the cost of going into space as though it were booking a, a, you know, flights mm. to Spain or, or Portugal yeah. or whatever. You know, oh, this is half a million and this is really, you know, oh, and that's not good value. They're, they're, they're bizarre conversations mm. that, that we're now, that we've now moved into. And um and yeah, it is just such a fast changing yeah. picture.
1: Well, I, I liken it to flight. I mean, I always my, my, my own grandma Mother was born in 1900. I think she was born. She saw the first flight to landing on the moon in her lifetime of 100 years. Yeah. And we're only 50 years since they first landed on the moon. And now we're talking about commercial space flight. Yes, you've, you've got to have 28 million or whatever the figure might be. But um, I think in the next 50 years, I think space flight will be, I won't say as, as common as going to Spain or somewhere on holiday, uh, but I certainly think that the, the frontier of going into space for commercial reasons and possibly even for tourism is something that's going to happen. And there's plenty of people out there who are prepared to invest in it and there's all sorts of plans, so watch this space, literally.
0: Missions to Venus. Now, i yes. spotted in the news that NASA uh, is announcing two new missions to mm. Venus, um, particularly interested, well, that's uh, generally, I suppose this is true of all of the missions, looking at the atmospheric and geological conditions. So tell us a bit more about well, that. Now.
1: Venus is a fascinating planet. It's nearer to the sun than us. It's only 72 million miles away from the sun. We're 93 million miles away from the sun. But it's pretty well an Earth twin. It's very similar in size, but after that, it's totally different. It's the most inhospitable place in the solar system. It's got completely shrouded in clouds, which are rain-sulfuric acid rain. We've had these analogies before. But what is fascinating the scientists, the geologists in particular, is how did Venus get to be like that? Yes, we're fascinated with Mars, and we understand a lot more about Mars now. We understand that Mars lost its atmosphere. It did have surface water, and that evaporated when the atmosphere was lost. But on Venus, we've got the opposite effect. Why has it got such a thick atmosphere? And one of the fascinating things going back to my geology days when I was at university was that they don't think there is plate tectonics on Venus. And the plate tectonic activity of the continents drifting around, uh, which they do on the Earth very slowly, but they do drift, um, is one of the fundamental features of how the Earth evolved. That does not appear to be the case on Venus. So has it been locked in? By some reason, by excessive heat, by excessive pressure, uh, by the way it formed. um, We just don't know. There's lots of speculation as to what Venus is like, and... We haven't been back to Venus since 30 years, since the uh, NASA sent their Magellan spacecraft there to orbit Venus. Very hostile surface on Venus, so not easy to get to the surface. The Russians have done it successfully. Um, So what NASA have done, they said, right, it's time to look at Venus again. And they're sending these two spacecraft to Venus in a few years. I think 2027 is by the time they'll get there. And only a few days ago, the European Space Agency announced that they're going to send a spacecraft to Venus. So we've... Gone to Mars with our robots and everything else. Now we're going to go to Venus. So you but, never know. You, ne- you can't keep up with it.
0: But it does sound, from what you say, as though there are fascinating secrets to be discovered mm. there in, in on Venus.
1: What did fascinate people about Venus last year was they actually discovered the... Um, in the upper atmosphere of Venus, some molecules that indicate that possible biological life could exist. When I say biological life, I'm talking about uh, amoeba or bacteria or something like that, uh, not little green men or anything stupid like that. But um, there is speculation that the conditions in the upper atmosphere of Venus may be uh, indicative of uh, of life being able to survive. Uh, which would be, but then again, you, you turn that round to looking at the deep ocean trenches of the Earth and we've got these nematodes and things like that living in very hostile conditions on the Earth. So why not on Venus as well? Right, lots of questions.
0: Which nicely brings us around to what I think, unfortunately, is going to be our final story for, for the programme and something that I spotted. we we Often people challenge the amount of money that's spent on space exploration. They do,
1: unfortunately.
0: Uh, and don't really realise that what we learn for everyday living, how much of it comes from space exploration. And I was fascinated by this story. Again, it's a NASA story and something that happened a few weeks ago that they launched 128 baby bobtail squids up to the International Space Station. And they sent them up because they've got a very similar immune system to ours and they want to see the effects of space, uh, being in space, Mm. on the immune system. But also, they're, they're looking at things like developing a stronger cotton.
1: Yes, that's right. So,
0: you know, those are kind of things that could have massive benefit for Absolutely. us. Absolutely. If, you know, making our clothes more durable, withstanding washing, which we're very fond of doing all the time, mm. you know, it, it's all coming back to our environmental concerns. It is. But the squid thing uh, is, is
1: an interesting one, isn't it? It is fascinating because, as I say, we, the human body, it's very expensive to send a human being into space. And we had the experiment a few years ago with Mark Kelly and he came back and his eyesight, as a consequence of being into space. Um, yes, we know your bone mass changes, so they do all this rigorous exercise. If you're on the space station, you've got to do two hours of exercise a day. Yeah, Keep you fit, certainly, but that's um, it's quite an onerous uh, thing to have to do with two hours on a treadmill or a running machine uh, every day or resistance exercise. But the idea that you've got a, a living organism, such as the squid, which they can replicate some of the circumstances or the conditions that are up in space on these creatures and um, will then enable them to look at them and see if there's a means by which we can protect human beings more when we go to Mars or whatever else we do when we want to go to uh into space to do whatever we do
0: or even protect us more as we go about our of daily course, life
1: of course yes i mean there's been already there have been some instances of um, uh, medical um things going on in that they've discovered in space that they can then bring to earth One, I don't, I'm not a, a biolog- biologist by any stretch of imagination but I know they can grow very big crystals in space you haven't got gravity so you can actually make these crystals form much bigger and then therefore you can use them for all sorts of reasons in pharmaceuticals and that is one of the big things they do and they are actually producing stuff and sending it up up in space and then sending it back down to earth um, they don't talk about it an awful lot because it's still it's sort of an embryonic state but uh, eventually I think in not so long a time Um, we'll have a number of space stations up there possibly manufacturing pharmaceuticals and other things like cotton and everything else um, in a safe environment that we can um, then send back down to Earth and uh, help us here on the Earth. Something tells me Howard that we will have no shortage of things ever to talk about on this programme. I don't think so. (laughs) But,
0: But this month we've been as ever beaten by the clock. Howard Parkin astronomer in residence. Thank you very much indeed for joining us for this month's edition of the Manx Sky at Night here on Manx Radio.
1: Thank you very much, Judith, and good night to you.
0: Fast my Howard. The Nation Station Manx Radio